use Mike again for those who, who aren't aware of him. Um, Mike Stewart, physiotherapist, pain educator, uh, travels world, worldwide. Both Craig and I have been on his course. He's, uh, as I said, he's solely responsible for my my interest in pain and, and the way it's risen and been fairly intense over the last three years. Um, and the reason we've asked him on uh, is that we know pain, the, the, the undeniable fact is that pain is complex. Um, it needs to be kept as simple and as applicable as possible. And Craig and I are both of the opinion that Mike uh, does that beautifully. So um, within podiatry, and, and as you know, Mike, the, the main audience here are going to be podiatrists. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some people with, with a good understanding, but on the whole, it's, it, we're very mechanically minded. We're very biased in the mechanical way. That's, that's the way we're taught. Uh, and we don't really get to touch on the biopsychosocial model of healthcare in our undergrad training. Um, and we now know that that's probably uh, something we really need to be concentrating and focusing on. So we really appreciate you coming on to uh, to educate all of us, myself and Craig included, of course, uh, on this, this this sort of really complex uh, area. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. And thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, uh, hi to everybody who's watching. Pain is extremely complex, but as it turns out, not as complex as. Uh, as online live chats, um, <laughs> <laughs> more complex. Yeah. Uh, so no pain. Pain is. Uh, I've always been fascinated by pain. I qualified as a physio twenty years ago, and uh, it weird to me how uh, when I first qualified, uh, I was constantly told that I had to treat Mrs. Jones where it hurts. You know that the pain was coming from her knee or her ankle or her back, and I would do things to Mrs. Jones. And Mrs. Jones would feel great for two days and then she'd be back again wanting more of the same. So I started, I became very disillusioned as a healthcare professional because I entered into healthcare to help people, but I quite quickly felt that I was part of people's problem rather than part of their solution. And uh, I, I can see a couple of nodding heads. I'm, I, I'm sure some other people around the world are nodding theirs too. So uh, one of the things I often see when I when I teach around the world, uh, whatever the healthcare profession I'm teaching, podiatrists included, often uh, one of the wishes that people have is to move away from being uh, the person in power to empowering other people, to enabling other people to make sense of this weird thing that is pain and uh, not having to keep coming back for care and treatment. Awesome. So self and resilience and all of those things which are essential so i mean the way we'd hoped it went and obviously craig dive in uh, any uh, any point but we've we've been sort of pooling some questions and some and, uh, and some comments over the over the week since we announced you were coming on and and really just to, to start really basically and talk about a, a sort of a definition of pain and particularly how that definition of pain may have changed uh, over the years and then tease out some of those individual aspects of um of pain and then, and then ultimately towards the end of course uh talk about how this how this matters in clinic how we apply this when we see our patients yeah. is that your dog craig or yours mike no, sorry mike, before you start yeah my i apologize my <laughs> dogs are barking in the background just before mike answers that in just alluded to the changing definition of pain let me just try something let me just share my screen and hopefully it works um can you can you see the slide guys i can i can yep yeah, just, I think for me, the whole, following on from what Ian said, the whole pain thing is something that I've ignored um, myself. I've certainly been conscious that, that a lot's been happening because I, I keep seeing all these courses advertised. And so I, on Ian's recommendation, I did Mike's course when he was down here in Melbourne. 
and, and I, I did sort of wonder what I was doing there at the start. Um, but in the first few minutes, Mike put this slide up and it sort of hit me, this is why I'm here. And it's this changing definition of or, or understanding of pain from well, these two definitions from 1980 to 2003. So I wonder if you start there, Mike, in answering Ian's question about that, that changing definition. Sure, sure. And it, it was really nice when you said earlier to Craig about the fact that, you know, this made you realise why you're there. Because I think sometimes the, the, the neuroscientist Stephen Pinker talks about this thing called the curse of knowledge, where you know it and therefore you assume other people also know it. And we do this all the time with a whole variety of different topics. But, um, but I always, uh, part of me, when I first saw this uh, as a student, these two definitions, the first thing I thought was pain has come a very, very long way in a very short space of time. You know, this change from being something like Mancastle says, which is to do with injury and soma to purely to do with the muscles and the bones and the tissues uh, and not to do with the human being. So it's almost like you're a, a motor car rather than a, a human being. Uh, it, 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 it goes back to what I was saying before about my disillusionment with being a healthcare professional, uh, n- not feeling like I was able to truly help people by just pushing on bits that were hurting or doing interventional things to the part of their body that was uncomfortable. So um, I think those two definitions do show that huge change. Uh, Lorimer Mosley's definition in 2003, which I think is excellent, uh, pain is an output. If we're going to pick up on any of those words that are interesting, first of all, a multiple system. There is not a holy grail magic off switch. There's not just one place that we need to work on to make pain go away. It's far more complex than that. Um, pain is an output. It's, it's not an input. It's not coming from the part that hurts. It involves the tissues. Pain is a conversation between the tissues and the nervous system. But it's not, I mean, I always use the idea that Frank Sinatra once said, you can't have one without the other. So there's got to be some bottom-up information and there's got to be some top-down information also. And, and I think the most important thing that, that Mosley alludes to is the perceived threat. This is what this saber-toothed tiger is all about. Um, if you don't understand pain as a perceived threat, it's impossible to accept and acknowledge how easy it is to threaten people. We threaten people all day, every day without meaning to. I'm never a finger pointer. I, I hate, you know, saying you're wrong and this is wrong and that's right. Um, but the problem often as a healthcare professional, if we don't understand the perceived threat that's intrinsic within pain, we threaten people. We threaten people with our mouth. This is a threat machine. The words we use, the posters we put up on our walls. So uh, making sense of pain really does change your outlook on practice. Would you say, would you agree? Completely. Absolutely. Um, The more it's fundamentally changed. We'll come on to this later, but it's fundamentally changed the way I I talk to people uh, and take a history fundamentally, um, which we'll we'll talk about a a bit later on, I'm sure, but I, I, I can't think of anything else I've learnt in the last decade that has, so strongly changed the way I communicate and I'm not saying I get it right all the time I, I, I'm certain I don't I'm, I'm on a I'm on a learning curve and I'm at the bottom of it but uh, I think that's why it's it's sort of grabbed me and and, and uh, hasn't let go of me from an interest perspective. I think one thing that always stuck with me uh, that changed my understanding of how I communicate with patients and uh, making sense of pain was one of those big steps uh, was a quote a quote by Eccleston and Crombez 
who argued that pain is an ideal habitat for worry to flourish. And <laughs> I, I think I often say to my patients that it takes one to know one. I think one of the reasons that I'm so engaged and passionate about helping people with pain is because when I was younger, um, I had epilepsy. It was not very well diagnosed. I used to have these uncontrollable fits. And actually, a lot of the symptoms that came with that as a, as a kid was sheer blind panic. And, uh, you know, the, the, the uncertainty of and the unpredictability of living with a long term condition. And I think I see lots of similarities in uh, all long term conditions. It, it's quite interesting that when people come onto the course, they often say, you know, I don't work in musculoskeletal care. I don't work with people with back injuries and neck injuries. I, I work with, uh, you know, in respiratory care with people with asthma and COPD and or Parkinson's or MS. And actually a lot of uh, the way that we try to empower people through knowledge, through making sense of their distress and their situation and I, it is a good thing. And I, I think that brings us on to something interesting. I often try to get across the point that maybe the word, the problem here is the word pain. We have lots of connotations, lots of uh, influences from our history, from our from our uh, from our education as healthcare professionals. With the word pain, we think of it as "ouch," like being pinched. And actually, if you look at the complexity of pain, maybe a better word to reflect the complex nature of it is distress. Distress sort of covers a whole range of things. If I'm a physiotherapist trying to fix pain then to fix pain, what do I do? I might use my hands, I might use machines, I'm going to do something interventional. If I ask the same question but change the word to distress, now all of a sudden I've got a very, very different skill set. And a lot of healthcare professionals are a bit like a rabbit caught in the headlights when we're faced with people in distress because how do we solve those problems? And that's sometimes where the communication skills and the knowledge comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Um should we should we rifle through the the sort of comments that came in, in in what feels like a logical order, and then we can go off on a tangent if need be? Is that the best way to do it? Sure, yeah. Right, yeah. Craig, Craig, are you okay keep, keeping an eye on the any comments coming in? Yeah, I am. Over? I'm also muting my microphone as much as possible because my dogs won't stop barking. <laughs> but, you know, let's <laughs> let's push on from your end. I think those dogs are in distress. Um, okay, so. We go back to sort of the, the definitions and how they've changed. It's probably best to start there again, just to recap. Certainly, I recall being taught the, the, uh, this sort of model of, of and we, you know, we're mainly talking about foot pain because we're, we're a group of podiatrists, or at least distal peripheral pain. Um, and we're talking about this concept of something hurts uh, in response to something external. An external stimulus damages a tissue, and these pain receptors take the message to the brain and, and we're just not going to be able to switch that off until we've, we've healed or until we've fixed something, whether it be mechanical or tissue damage or a combination of the two. And uh, what we now know is that there's probably so many things in there that, that, that aren't particularly supported by the science of the day. I think that's, that's, that's reasonable to say. So we've moved on to this, this model of um, uh, or this, this definition that pain is a very personal thing. Uh, pain is a very contextual thing. Um, it uh, is an output, as we say, it's an output of the brain 100% of the time with no exception, I believe is, is what Laura, Laura Mosley uh, mentioned. Um, and we really just want to sort of then talk about some of the things around that, some of the, the, the sort of discrepancies between the two, because definitely when I've tried to, to, to talk to people about this, it sort of feels like we're trying to tell patients that 
they're imagining pain. Pain's all in their head. It's all in your mind. And suddenly we're not the therapists that we used to be, or the biomechanists or the podiatrists, the physios. Suddenly there's this expectation, what do I need to be a, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor? And that's not really the message, is it? No, no. God, I think that brings up, again, uh, the complexity of this problem is that there's so much to look at. First of all, um, a psychologist who I work with always says that, uh, you know, he sort of wishes that he was not a psychologist and he was a physiotherapist. Because actually, (laughs) you can do things as somebody who's not a psychologist. If we have those skills, then we do psychology all day, every day, don't we? I'm sure in podiatry, you're constantly using psychology. We don't call it psychology. Uh, we we maybe call it reassurance and empowerment and uh, communication skills, but effectively what we're doing is dealing with people who are in distressing situations. Who the research shows, you know, lots of meta analyses and systematic reviews show that what do people in pain want? They want to get their life back to normal. They want to be themselves again. Uh, so there's a huge amount of of things to consider here. Um, I think the first thing to say and and. and it, Pain is extremely complicated, but it doesn't have to be really hard and really, really complex to try and help somebody make sense of it. Uh, That distinction between nociception, between, uh, you know, say somebody standing on my toe and the perception of the threat of that information coming in. One way to try and get it across to people is to provide an experience. Uh, The psychologist Fordyce once said, Uh, For behavioral change, if you want to help somebody change their behavior or make sense of their experience, uh, for behavioral change, uh, information alone is like throwing spaghetti at a brick. So just (laughs) talking to somebody to help them make sense of this weird pain thing is not enough. We have to use experiential learning, which requires maybe using an experience that we've all shared. So uh, how I do that is I talk about hearing. I don't talk about pain with people. I'll, I'll help them make sense of how hearing is an input uh, and it's an output as well. I mean, for for me to hear now, I'm going to have to take information in through my ears and then my brain interprets that information, bases it on the context. So if there's somebody running in the room with a machine gun now, uh, the context will shift completely. Uh, All of a sudden, uh, there's going to be this huge change. So hearing involves input, but the actual process of hearing something is the output. It's the interpretation from here. Hearing is always a perceptual brain construct. Um, And in the same sense, uh, if somebody stands on my toe, all that is is an input. It's just like the sound waves coming into my ear. It's not pain. It's just an input of information, of warning data. Nociception is, uh, there was a simple trivialization, Patrick Wall said. We called it pain fibers. And nociception are not pain fibers. It's just encoding of noxious stimuli. And, uh, And that's not pain. That's not a perceptual thing like hearing. It's, it's just information, just like sound waves. Hmm. That sort of goes some way to maybe so, how people is shifting to hearing or sight and uh, different senses. So a reasonable summary would be that, that we don't, pain is not generated in the foot and ankle complex. That's a fair thing to say. We, we, we receive a stimuli, uh, you know, uh, some form of sort of, uh, uh, in, you know, input that, that, that then uh, is, taken to the brain as information the brain then with the with all of the information available and and the context available um ultimately decides on the level of threat real or perceived and and pain is the possible output of that is that a reasonable summary 
Very much so, yeah. I, I think a really good way to try and help people make sense of their pain is to show them how weird pain is. Prove it. Um, I use lots of stories. I'm constantly on the lookout for weird pain stories because there are so many of them about. Uh, so I'll use one where um, there's a guy in Shanghai. It was in the, time, uh, in the Times newspaper here in the UK. A guy in Shanghai who was walking down the street and a, a knife dropped from 16 stories and landed in his head. And I showed him an image of this huge knife stuck in this guy's head on an x-ray. Uh, as a qualitative researcher, it's, it's interesting because it's often the words that give things away. It wasn't the shocking thing of a knife in his head. It was his recollection of the experience. He said uh, it felt like a, like a teardrop, like a raindrop on his head. He didn't notice that there was a knife in there. He hadn't noticed any pain until the local tobacconist stopped him and said, you've got a big knife in your head. Then pain came on. So pain is really weird. Uh, it's a conscious experience. It's based on perceived threat. That guy had no perception of perceived threat. He just thought it was a raindrop until the tobacconist said, you've got a huge knife in your head. Pain washed over him. He dropped to the floor. Agony. Um, so I quite like sharing weird pain stories because I tend to find that weird pain stories elicit weird pain stories from patients. Uh, I, I had a lady the other week who came in and said to me, based on that conversation we've just had about the guy in Shanghai, I've now remembered this weird experience I had where I you know, ran along the beach and smashed a glass bottle all over my foot but didn't notice it until I got to the end of the race. You know, She was so focused on something else, her perception had shifted. And I think that's an interesting thing to pick up on is we had uh, a lady a while ago and she said the nicest thing about making sense of pain as a perception is that it was liberating for her. She'd spent years being told that her knees were shot to bits and that she was going to need surgery. And, and she said, you know, I couldn't change my knees, but I could change my perception. Dyer once said, change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. It's a nice sort of change and a shift in, in your viewpoint. And that's what we have to do is help people reconceptualize pain in a meaningful way. Uh Brilliant. And, and let's just talk a bit more about the, we've touched on pain being a very personal and individual thing uh, and being weird and complex. And also we've talked a bit about uh, how dependent it is on context. So we touch on a few of the things there. So certainly from reading your work and others, we know that certain things that, that can feed into this are stress, uh, anxieties, uh, being sleep deprived, uh, your beliefs, uh, your, you know, even uh, cult, I think there's a cultural difference. Um, from what I remember, um, what, what are some of the other things that, that you know, that, that really, we really need to be thinking about? And obviously previous experience and injury being them, because they're going to feed into our history taking, aren't they? Yeah, well, there's, I, I'm sure most people from their training probably remember uh, pain gate theory. Patrick Wall, Melzack and Wall from 1967. And pain gate was this very simple idea of opening and closing a gate. And Melzack in 2005 came up with pain neuromatrix theory, which sounds very complex and very Keanu Reeves-like maybe. But <laughs> pain neuromatrix theory is, is saying what you've just said, that actually there are lots of different parts of the brain that come together, like a boardroom meeting, uh, you know, lots of different people coming together to make a decision. And then pain is then the output or sometimes the decision not to provide an output. For example, if you trip in the road and sprain your ankle, uh, if it's really, you know, inflamed and, uh, and you've, uh, you, you've had some form of injury, if you're on a quiet road, 
the context is, oh my God, you know, this is, this is horrible. I've sprained my ankle. If you're on a busy city street with a big bus coming towards you, the, the likelihood is you're not going to get any pain because which part of your body makes that decision to get out of the road? It's certainly not your ankle. It's the output. It's, it's that sort of instantaneous survival mechanism to get out of the way of the bus. So, um, yeah, I, I think we have to help people make sense of pain as a perceived threat. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the most important things to do is to understand that pain is linked to threat, reduce the threat in our language and in our communication. Great. And, um, actually, uh, Jay, I'm just looking at the comments that have come in. James Welsh has, uh, just mentioned about, uh, the literature on sleep. I think we, uh, you know, the, the relevance of sleep deprivation on, on someone's pain. I mean, it's pretty good data now to tell us if someone isn't getting enough sleep, if they're sleep deprived, um, that they're sensitive. I, I think the word sensitivity is appropriate, but correct me if I'm wrong, that they're, they're much more uh, sensitized. Is that, is that the right word to use? Yes, very much so. Uh, you, you're much more sensitized when you've lacked sleep for a consistent period of time. Uh, also, if you think about it, we, we end up with a situation whereby uh, our cognitive function is impaired. Uh, our ability to react to situations is impaired. Our uh, drive and our desire and our self-esteem, all of those things. And I think this comes back to, again, um, pain is, we, we call it the biopsychosocial model. But actually, if we were to reflect the evidence it would be the socio-psycho biomodel. Uh, the social impacts of pain are enormous. And if we think about all of the social impacts of not being able to sleep, that's huge. You know, that's an enormous thing, not being able to work maybe or do your job very well or look after the kids. Or... So I think one of the things that I often do when I'm teaching is, is to emphasize the importance on the social impact of pain and become better at helping people um, live a life that's important to them, that has value. Uh, uh, and going back to those things that that they hold dear yep yep great another comment that came in uh from uh, another podiatry colleague uh, dr kevin kirby was off the back of a discussion i was having with him several weeks back about pain and um i i rightly or wrongly and please do call me on it if, if it's wrongly but i used a, a sort of throwaway comment that that about i was trying to get across that pain was an output at least that was my understanding of it so i i, I referred to to pain being a, an opinion of the brain. So it, it takes all the available information, the danger, the threat, the context, the experience, et cetera. And it, and it makes a decision. It, it forms an opinion on whether it, pain as an output is an appropriate response. Um, and, and Kevin took, uh, sort, of, sort of took exception, so to speak, to, to my use of the word opinion. So I thought we might, might get your, your take on, is that, is that an inappropriate word to use? And if so, what's a better word? Yeah, I, I think opinion, the word opinion was first used by Patrick Wall uh, many years ago. Patrick Wall um, said that ongoing pain is less about damage to the tissues and more about the brain's opinion of the body part, uh, which essentially, I suppose, a, a, a better way to look at it would be uh, imagine that the body is like a large company. And if the body was a large company with lots of different departments, uh, your ankle might be the admin department, uh, the back might be the sort of human resources department, but the part of the body that's making all the decisions where the output is coming from is the brain. That's the CEO. So the, the, I always get across this concept that, you know, if 10 years ago before you had your foot pain, say, you were running regularly, you were going to work, you were doing things, your brain's opinion, your boss's opinion of that body part is good. 
it's performing well, it's hitting its targets, it's doing okay. If over the last 10 years you've started to have more pain and that means that your sensitivity level has gone up and your ability to do things has dropped, so we end up with this mismatch between how sensitive you are and how, how good you are functioning uh, as a human being, then there are problems. Um, the opinion, the, the, the view of you, like the scrutiny on that department then increases. We know that we have uh, an increased amount of, of, uh, of, of observations from the nervous system in a sense of what is this area doing? How do I get it back to, to performing well again? And, uh, and that switches on all sorts of other parts of the brain, the amygdala, the limbic system, which then starts to seek out threat. I, I sometimes get across this idea that uh, pain is like a music gig where the devil plays all the best tunes. So <laughs> if, the, uh, if, if your ankle starts to become uncomfortable, the boss starts looking and then all of a sudden those parts of the brain that are uh, the effective mind, uh, the amygdala, the limbic system, start to look for threat information, start to seek your uh, seek information that supports your belief hmm. yeah and probably a good time i think to uh, to come on to acute versus chronic pain um because you touched on a couple of things there the first was that the and i read this in your in your paper that in the bjsm which is a beautiful sentence that suggested that the, the duration of pain uh, is key when we take a history because ultimately the longer that pain has been going on particularly when it doesn't match with the biological time frame that you'd expect healing to occur within the far more likely that we are not dealing with a, a scenario that involves just tissue damage anymore and uh, as podiatrists, certainly uh, not not exclusively, but the, the lion's share of our musculoskeletal work is is often people that have been in pain for, for several months. You know, yeah. it's usually the way they present. So I think it's key if we're going to uh, educate people, and we know that educating on pain is key. Uh, we need to understand it ourselves. So viewing pain as this this alarm system, this this uh, that, that can go wrong and can be faulty, like any alarm system. Could you just outline and sort of simplify acute pain versus chronic pain and how we could perhaps uh, discuss this with our patients? Yeah, I think, uh, again, rather than providing people with information and, you know, you know, when you sort of talk to people, they just sometimes glaze over a little bit. So I think, yeah, <laughs> I do this as an educator. It's got to be a dialogue. It's got to be a conversation. And that conversation has to be based on more than just information. It has to be based on experience. So I, I, I do this with patients quite often. If I cut my finger, if I'm chopping vegetables up and I cut my finger open, uh, how long does it take for that cut finger to, to heal? And most people will say, well, it depends on the cut, but you know, within days or weeks, and the truth of the matter is, is that, of course, you don't have ongoing tissue harm that lasts for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, like you might have with pain. So um, what is the point of pain? Why would it hurt if you cut your finger? Most people will say it's warning me. It's warning me. It's telling me to pull the knife away, which is sometimes why we get lots of patients who will say, uh, I don't like taking pain medications because they're going to mask my pain. I want to feel it. So pain for most people is a useful thing one of my patients wants you know you know your patient has got it when they're able to say it in their own words and and she interpreted it as let me get it right she said pain is my friend at first if i cut my finger it's useful uh, but if it's been dragging on for a long time it's like that friend that refuses to go home from my party <laughs> 3 a.m looking for you know jack daniels that sort of thing 
Um, Deborah Padfield, the pain researcher, she once said something, and I thought it was quite interesting. She said that uh, pain is the gift that nobody wants. It's it's really important. If you're somebody who lives with a condition called congenital insensitivity to pain, you, you're incapable of feeling pain. Um, I show, I show images of these people to my patients who themselves are living with lots of pain. And they often say, you know, what a blessing. Imagine living a life where you can't feel pain, where it's impossible. That's not a blessing. You know, we need pain. Pain is a crucial part of being a human being. It tells you if something's wrong. But the problem is, of course, that injury that you've sustained, uh, you know, at the start of the onset gets better. But the problem then is, is for millions and millions of people across the planet and Pain is an epidemic that keeps growing every year. Uh, despite the fact that your tissues have healed, uh, your pain gets worse and worse. And we then continue to have more problems where we involve um, your beliefs and your attributions and failed attempts with healthcare professionals where they've tried to do things interventionally to the bit that hurts and it gets better for a bit. We scratch the itch and then it returns. So people end up going around this loop where they try to seek the off switch. They get short-term help. The pain comes back again. They worry even more. And all of a sudden, that loop starts to cost a lot of money. And, uh, uh, and uh, it involves a lot of distress and a lot of problems for millions of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so clinically, when we've got someone sitting in front of us in clinic, we, we know, you know from, from what we've talked about so far, when we're taking a history, uh, we need to ask, rather than just about, you know, Tell me how you did, tell me how you, uh, you know, thinking mechanistically, what were you doing when you, you know, when you injured it? And we still, of course, do ask that, but we need to be broader that, you know, when someone presents with a longer duration of pain, we need to broaden everything. Um, certainly my take home from your paper, we need to ask about, uh, beliefs, concerns, previous injury. Um, you know, we've always asked, uh, what are your previous injuries? And we're often thinking mechanistically, uh, oh, once you've sprained your ankle once, you're more likely to sprain it again. Or, or, you know, once you've injured one area, perhaps it's more vulnerable. It wasn't rehabbed appropriately. But it's reasonable, I think, to, to say once someone's had one injury, uh, when they start feeling sensitivity in that area again, the way they respond, the way their brain and uh, you know, the output from their brain may be completely uh, sort of uh, discontinuous with what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I do, and it's quite a simple, practical thing, but I've learned over the years to, before my first patient comes in, before I meet them for the first time, um, I ask them to come up with a list of things, you know, a list of questions, a list of problems, uh, things that they're experiencing. So that list, 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, that list is never um well i have pain here and it just hurts and it's seven out of ten it's never it's never as we were trained uh that list often involves other things such as uh you know i'm not able to work i'm having this problem here so uh, I, I think asking people to come up with a problem list will really highlight uh the complex social psychological cultural issues i think that another point as well uh, you touched on culture before um I'd like to share a story with you from a course I taught in Paris a while ago where there was a Brazilian guy who, a physio who was on the course. And he said what was strange when he first moved to Paris from Brazil is that he suddenly noticed that all these Parisians would be talking about my pain is sharp, my pain is throbbing. They'd use these sort of words of uh, mechanistic harm 
You know, the, the, the stuff that we've learned from the McGill pen questionnaire, lanceating, sharp, stabbing, burning, throbbing, all those things. And he said back home in, in um, the Amazon, he's from the far north, Manaus in Brazil. He said, when I work with the tribes people, they'd never talk about their pain. They'd just come in and say, when I'm out chopping wood, I can't do this. I can't get my shoulder all the way back. Or they talk about function. They wouldn't talk about pain. And uh, the historian Joanna Bork says that in the Western world, we used to do something very similar. Um, there was this shift that came along. Maybe we think it was in the 18th, 19th century where we started to focus a lot more on describing pain and talking about pain and focusing on the problem rather than focusing on the solution. And I always get across to people that the problem isn't the problem. The solution is the problem. It's great. Okay, let's let's help you make sense of pain. But let's now move beyond it. Let's look at what are the solutions? How do we get you back to doing these things again? Because we're certainly taught and, and, and still, you know, difficult doctrine to get away from. Tell me how your pain feels. Does it feel sharp or does it feel dull? And, and you know, where is it? On a, well, let's come on to the, the VAS, the visual analog scale, the zero to 10, zero, no pain, 10, the worst pain you can imagine. Um, certainly, you know, as, as you know, my, my four out of 10, maybe your seven out of 10. And I know I've read uh, authors that, that, are no fan of the VAS for that reason. I mean, in your opinion, where do we stand with using, say, the VAS? Uh, should we, should we not? And also, what sort of questions do you think we should be asking to, to, to elicit these responses? You know, how, how should we be getting this information from the patient? Yeah, I, I think that the first thing to say about VAS is, is once you start to make sense of pain as a perception, you start to see the issue. There's a problem. There's a big dilemma with the VAS scale, which is, uh, of course, we're saying the word pain. And we know that if we put people in an fMRI scanner and we say the word pain to a microphone, on comes the experience of pain, the neurological output, if you like, in an fMRI scanner. Um, so it's a bit like saying, uh, do you have a thumb? So those of you who are watching at the moment, if I asked you if you have thumbs, of course, you'll go, yeah, I've got a thumb. And then if I get you to hold your thumb up and think about your thumb and look at your thumb and concentrate on how it feels most people start to feel something in there. They'll start to get a sense of, you know, pins and needles or it gets heavy or they want to click it. And what's interesting is you weren't aware of your thumb until I said the word thumb. And this is a problem with pain is that the more we say to people, not 10, what's your pain like? What's your pain like? All we're doing is we're switching them on. We're, we're cognitively shifting their focus, their attentional bias towards pain, towards the perception of pain. And, uh, and I, I think Maybe we have to shift away from pain, saying pain less and starting to focus more on, if you watch me in practice, I focus much more on, uh, like the Brazilian guy was saying, uh, how confident are you to try this? How happy are you when you're doing this? So that the attentional focus shifts massively towards doing things, getting you back to lifting your kids and, you know, uh, whatever's important to you in your life, going back to work, lifting boxes, rather than keeping that focus that sort of very blinkered focus on not to 10 how's your pain there was a patient once in a study deborah padfield study and she said my pain is evil where do i put evil on a scale of not to 10 <laughs> and again that's sort of highlights the problem is uh, how do you put pain on a numerical scale or how do you put it into words actually words can be very hard to describe pain um so this is where sometimes we get into the the realm of metaphor Mm. Uh, you know it, it can be a, a more creative way for you to express the experience 
But um, but yeah, I I think VAS it has its place, but I think is very much overused. And often, from my experience, people often say I have to use it because I'm told I need to use it, and it was part of my training. And actually, I would uh, you know invite you to go and look at the literature uh, and, and see the issues, some of the qualitative work, particularly where we know that uh, people don't like that question. Not to ten pain. What's it like? Yeah. Yeah. Away from that. We'll link to some of the literature below. You know, on that note, a story of my own, I asked a patient once, uh, trying to describe to me the, the sensation and expecting sharp, dull, seven out of 10. And they said to me, uh, it feels like a prodigy song. Uh, wow. and, and I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this information. I wrote it in my notes. Uh, and I'm just desperate for someone else to read that one day and go, what the hell is this going on about? But, but again, really just hit home to me how personal it was to them. And that was just the best way they could articulate and verbalize the way it felt well do you know it's it's not that silly a point really in a sense i mean um part of the work i want to do for a phd is is looking at i, I do lots of work with metaphor and uh I, I for a long time now i've been asking patients if your pain was a song which song would it be oh really <laughs> rather, rather than talking about uh, about naught to ten you know i, I want to try and understand the experience that they're having uh, and uh, Bolton, uh, who's an educator, talks about the need in healthcare for serious playfulness. So there's a there's a need for you to try and be creative and playful uh, to try and get information out of people, not just the standard dry, literal ways that we've been doing things for years. We know that they can not help many people. So, uh, but it's not that weird a question, I think, to ask people what their pain would be, what their song would be. Um, I ask lots of people on courses, you know, if they have a song that relates to something in their life, uh, a, a, an experience, a nice experience like a wedding or maybe a first dance or, uh, you know, a, a bereavement experience. Uh, and virtually everybody has a song that they go to. And uh, I, I've had lots of experiences with clinicians and patients where um, they learn a lot about the human being in front of them from the songs they choose, the lyrics they choose. It, it, it sort of allows them to open up to express something. So I, I, I'm, I'm far more into an, a narrative exploration of pain uh, rather than a sort of tick boxology, as one of my patients said, that sort of, you know, going through the motions and ticking through the boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a bit about um, communication, the words we use, word, words that can have, the, as you said, the, the absolute ability to harm as much as they can help. Um, and I know from, from keeping an eye on the physiotherapy world, uh, this is often discussed in the concept of back pain or the spine. Um, you know, that kind of jam donut squidging out the jam, which is, is, is just a horrific sort of nocebic image. Um, and uh, certainly some of the physios in clinics cutting out, you know, that little uh, spine uh, model that has the red disc bulging. And I know I've seen physios that have taken, you know, a knife to that to remove it from the, from the yeah. clinic because it's so yeah. nocebic. I mean, I know you're not a podiatrist, but in the world of podiatry, can you think of any sort of terms that, that, that immediately you sort of think that would be a really, really uh, poor choice of, of words? I mean, we're often looking at people mechanically, posturally. Uh, there's a term I've always hated, and it's, uh, I know Craig's uh, no fan either, and we're not the only two, and this is the, the term overpronation. Yeah. We've yeah. never been fans of this term for, for numerous reasons, because, uh, you know, from a mechanical point of view, it's undefinable, it's poorly correlating with injury, blah, blah, blah. But let's, let's, think more in the context of what we're talking about here uh, surely this term has the ability because of the kind of reputation it has to be to be harmful if we really think about it at that level 
very much so and especially in this connected world where if uh, what i often do when i work with patients i'll often say to them you know what words have you heard and they they tell me about you know scoliosis and uh, inversion you know there's one for <laughs> inversion. and then they don't understand and again it comes back to this curse of knowledge that stephen pinker talks about that we understand these words these words were new to us when we went to college but now they're such a normal part of our language that we don't even think of them as an odd word, a new word, or we don't see the threat in that word. So mm. I'll give you a, a couple of examples, one that's physio and ones that's maybe more towards podiatry. Uh, I had a guy a while ago who came in to see me and we were going through our sort of standard red flag questions for back pain. So any problems with your bladder or bowel, I said. And he suddenly sort of looked really quite concerned and he said, do you think I have bowel cancer? And uh, we had to stop and have a chat. And essentially, just the fact that I've said the word bowel for him reconfirmed the fact that he thought I had. He thought that I thought that he had bowel cancer that killed his father the year before. And of course, I didn't. But that's just one of the standard questions. But he was frank enough and open enough to be able to communicate that to me. So words that we utter have no meaningful threat to us, but they might have huge impact on people's perception and it reconfirms, it rubber stamps their, their sort of uh, credentials as somebody who's about to die or has this huge threat. Uh, another one which is maybe more interesting from a podiatry point of view, um, uh, my, uh, I have a, uh, my wife has, uh, has a son who's 24. He's just qualified as a paramedic. And uh, over Christmas on Boxing Day, uh, he had his, uh, his nephew uh, was saying, oh, I've got this problem with my toe. So my, my, uh, my stepson it was looking at this kid's toe and he was saying some of the language that he was using, you know, as a young healthcare professional was, was quite technical, quite jargony. Or, you know, I think that toe has got some inflammation under there. And, it's, and of course, the little kid started crying his eyes out. And I, I said to, to him, you know, this is the first lesson in nocebo. Nocebo, mm. for those of you who don't know, I always find it quite interesting how patients always know and clinicians always know placebo. Yeah. Placebo is a real thing. It's uh, the ability to reassure people. Louis Gifford once said reassurance is a bloody good painkiller. Um, placebo is uh, nocebo is placebo's evil twin. It's threat information. It's uh, saying you have all this inflammation under there. We might need to take that nail off. You might need to see the doctor. And of course, what did we see in this small child was a, an experience of threat. Um, so I think when you understand pain, uh, you understand how it's very, very easy. We sit in a pivotal place where we can take people who have an acute injury and we can make them somebody who has an ongoing uh, awareness of a problem that shouldn't really be there. We can disable people without meaning to. That for me is the, that for me is the the toughest thing. I think that since I've been reading more and more about this, is how I how I reconcile it with with my sort of uh, mechanical approach to things, uh, and also uh, it's made me visit everything I say and and and. and, and almost made me sort of say what can I say anymore what what, what what's okay to say and I, I think it's it, it's the more I read the more I realize it's important but at the same time I can see why, why people think oh, I'm just going to carry on as I am because it's pretty stressful re, re, re-looking at everything and it you do on a daily basis yeah 
I, I think a psychologist that I used to work with always said to me that um, if you're talking more than your patient, there's something wrong. There's a problem. And I think that comes back to, I, I often get across this idea that um, the answers to people's problems, the solutions to people's problems lie in their words and thoughts often, not ours. And um, I, I did a study, it's due for publication later on this year, where we looked at um, physiotherapists prescribing exercises for patients. And uh, what we were really looking at was the percentage amount of time that we could hear the patient's voice. Six percent was the average. So six percent of the consultation. So often we know a lot of the research shows that, you know, exercise prescription and healthcare in general is is very didactic. It's very clinician centered. Uh, Patients often feel disempowered through the process. And I think the, the, the tip that I would give is what I've learned, I think, over the years is the more that you listen to people, the more they'll tell you stuff and the more they'll work out for themselves what the answer is. Our job is to guide rather than tell. And that can be a very, a very hard shift. Mm. Uh, yeah. when, when I did the course, I can remember one slide which you, you put up, which was an MRI of the spine and an old telephone beside it. And we're talking yes. about the wiring. And then in other parts, you were talking about some of the normal anomalies that have been found on MRI. We've just had a question come in which reminded me of that part of the course. And it was x-rays of a heel spur are, very, are a very threatening image for a patient. And it yeah. makes a lot of sense for them when they see it. But oh, I can't remember the exact figure, but 20 to 30% of the normal population have heel spurs. <laughs> Um, yeah. So that's a really a really good example of what you were talking about in the context of some of the normal anomalies. So I just wanted, wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I, well, I, I think we know there's been so much evidence now to show, we know a few things about imaging, particularly MRI. Um, first of all, a very low yield of useful findings. Uh, secondly, a very high yield of misleading findings. And thirdly, a lack of proven benefit for outcome. We know that you've had an image done of your, uh, bone spare on your calcaneus or of your back we know that having that image doesn't necessarily correlate to better clinical outcomes um, so I think we have to be very very careful when we're um, first of all describing images to people and secondly showing them I, I had a lady a while ago who said to me at the end of the process that we went through she said um, it's great she said I feel liberated I've made sense of it I understand it I've moved on I'm back playing tennis and doing things she said, but if there's one thing that I would change, it would be never to have seen my scan because the healthcare professional didn't ask. They just sort of said they assumed that she would want to see the image of her back. And she said, you know, it scared the living daylights out of her. And, uh, you know, still now to this day, even though she's uh, doing better, she still sees that at 3 a.m. in the morning. And there's a there's a game in psychology. Uh, it's called the chicken game. Uh, would you like to play the chicken game with me? Go on, Craig. The chicken game. <laughs> the chicken game goes something like this. Your job is to now not think about a chicken. Game over. Game <laughs> over. Yeah. As soon as we say the word chicken, already the cat is out the bag. So we have to be very conscious of that sort of negative suggestion, the impact uh, of things when we're showing people images. For example, something so simple as saying, don't worry. You know, it's, it's something that we all do to try and sort of reassure people. But, of course, what's the first thing you do as soon as I say don't worry? You worry. You start worrying. It's, uh, this goes back to classic 
uh, psychology studies done in the 60s, you know, putting a small child in a room and saying, don't eat the big juicy marshmallow. The kid wants to eat the big juicy marshmallow. So we can switch people onto things. Uh, and I think we have to be aware of that when we're talking about imagery and scans. Great. I've got one question. I know we're, we're, uh, we've been going on for a while, Craig, but this is one that has been asked of me a couple of times uh, and I'm just not smart enough to, to field it, if I'm honest. Um, and it's, uh, it's been asked usually by podiatrists. As podiatrists, you probably know, we, uh, we inject in and around the foot and the ankle uh, quite a bit, local anaesthetic, corticosteroid and things. And if we, you know, if we, know, if we, if we uh, appreciate that pain is an output of the brain, so there are no pain receptors, you know, distally, peripherally. Uh, and whether we experience pain or not is completely, as we say, the, the, the decision of the brain. Uh, a question that's been pointed at me is, well, how, how do we explain how local anaesthetic works? How can we inject a part of the foot and then feel no pain? Mm. Well, a local anaesthetic will change the sensation, won't it? It will change the sensation in the area. So you won't feel it, it will essentially effectively numb the area. Um, and by doing so, we'll reduce the nociceptive drive. So the nociceptive input, which is going north from the foot, up through the spinal column, up into the sort of uh, higher centers in the brain, is now not so driven. It's not so active. So therefore, you're not picking up on the perception of threat. Uh, also, you've got to think that it's never as simple. You can never really say with pain that uh, it's just one thing. I always think, you know, uh, sometimes when people say, let's go back for a second to the idea of running across the road, spraining your ankle, uh, not feeling any pain in that scenario if a bus is coming for you. You know, the bus is 50 meters away. Um, some people will say, oh, it's just adrenaline. That's just adrenaline. That's a bit like saying you can make a very complex gatto with one egg. It's, you know, it's one ingredient in the bowl. So I think the other thing we have to consider when we're looking at anesthesia is, is the context of the situation. Um, you know, surgery is by and large in the Western world often seen as uh, the sort of the magic button. You know, it's the, if, if healthcare is seen as a battlefield, the likes of you and I are, are the um, sort of soldiers and the tanks, you know, where the early stage stuff. But surgery is often seen as uh, it's gone beyond fighter jets. They're the MRI scans. Uh, and now we're looking at the nuclear warhead surgery. Surgical intervention is the sort of the, the top intervention that can be done that will kill the pain, win the war. Um, so, uh, you know, I suspect that that partly when we're looking at anesthesia, we are also looking at some belief systems, some social systems, um, you know, the fact that you're in with the top guy, the surgeon, or with the podiatrist who has the big needle and is able to cure the problem, fix the problem. So I, I think there's a whole range of things to consider, not just uh, physiological, but also social and psychological, which is where this socio-psycho-bio model uh, comes into play. I mean, it's infinitely more complex and feels more woolly than just... I've put a chemical in the toe, it's blocked the signal going to the brain, you know, uh, and I think that's probably why people prefer the, the, the latter d uh, description. You think that's fair to say? I would. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I've uh, myself and other people like me who try to help people make sense of pain and help you to help your patients. We're doing a difficult job because effectively it's much, much easier to think simply. It's much easier to sort of just see the, the tissue and the muscle and the bone. And, and of course, that's part of it. Um, Louis Gifford, and uh, I loved what he used to do. Louis Gifford said uh, that 
we have to have in parallel reasoning. You, you have to be, it's a bit like a set of train tracks. You can't just have one train track, which is the psychosocial impact of pain. You can't just be thinking about their, the human being, their beliefs, their attributions. Without this train track, which is the biomedical stuff, looking at pathoanatomical conditions and all that stuff that we've learned over the years, we can't throw that all out the window. So um, pain definitely involves tissues. Pain definitely involves, uh, you know, us revisiting all of those things that we've been doing for years. It doesn't mean that we throw that out the window. Uh, in physiotherapy, we had this erroneous debate, which was hands-on or hands-off. You know, if, I, if I, I'm not going to touch patients. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's really bad because if I had a pound for every time I see a patient who says, you know, they didn't touch me. I've come to see you because the last guy didn't touch me. And uh, how could they tell me about this sensitivity that I'm having when they didn't touch my back or my ankle or my, so uh, if we're talking about communication, touch is communication. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think um, you cannot take the bio out of the, I'm not going to say biopsychosocial. I'm going to say socio-psycho-bio. <laughs> a, far, a far more accurate reflection of the evidence. Great. Well, uh, Craig, have you got anything else that you want no, to say? or that or should we wrap up? I think um, we, we, we probably just need to talk about uh, Mike's course, because like I say, it's, it's completely uh, responsible for my interest in pain um, over the last three years, my continuing interest in pain. As I say, I'm, I'm no expert by a long, long way. And I, I've, I've encouraged every podiatrist I've spoken to since to to go on it if they get the chance and i know you have and i know that um, ian lenane has and probably some other some other guys um so it'd be great i think we, we give mike's course a plug um oh i can see you've put it up on the screen now actually thanks very much thank you it's um yeah it's hard because i don't think for lots of people uh pain science is not particularly sexy and as you say it's doing the hard stuff it's uh it's learning new skills and i, I think if I was just to sort of think about what it is that why people come to the course in the first place, when they give me their desires and wishes on courses, it's often to develop their communication skills, to develop their educational skills, you know, to become a better teacher. Uh, Cause they're things that we don't do. We sort of assume we can teach people. So uh, yeah, I, uh, thanks very much. I'm, I'm glad that you both enjoyed the course and uh, I continue to have lots of fun and pinch myself daily going around the world, teaching people. It's uh, it's very nice. We'll uh, we'll put a link to it in the comments, and and also the other thing I'll put a link to is your uh, you and and your co-author's paper in the BJSM uh, sort of six months ago or so. Which uh, for me, I know it's about elite sportsmen, but I think uh, for me it just resonates with every single patient I see in clinic. Um, yeah. I, one of the one of the best papers I read last year by a long way. Um, very much it, that that paper came from um i got asked to go and spend a few days at, with the international olympic committee uh in switzerland and there was 21 22 of us who, who went there for a few days and the olympics really wanted to look at you know how do we help uh people in pain elite athletes in pain and actually i think you've pointed into something we fall into a bit of a trap we we often tend to think that you know, chronic pain is people in wheelchairs with fibromyalgia and acute pain is athletes. And I work with lots of elite athletes. And uh, a while ago on a group that we had, we had a uh, an Olympian, a gymnast, sat next to an 82-year-old lady with back pain for 45 years. And 
allowing those two people to talk to each other and seeing the similarities in their narratives and stories uh, reminded me of uh, sometimes we need to break down the barriers that we have ourselves of thinking, uh, of categorizing people into, into boxes. Uh, so pain is pain. And, and uh, you know, I think acute and chronic and subacute, we have to see the similarities in terms of distress. Yeah, we'll link to that. We'll link to that paper below because I think everyone should read it. I truly do. If, if you're taking a history, you need to read this paper. That's my my take on it. Uh, Craig, anything you want to wrap up? Obviously, you just put the link to Mike's course on the on the video there. Um, yeah, <laughs> just just to touch on a comment that's just come in, just really quickly. I, I don't know if it was a joke or it was serious. Uh, from Adam Jeweler, I'm fairly sure you're over analysing and overthinking this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. That might be, that might be tongue in cheek. That might be someone who genuinely thinks we are wasting our time this evening. I don't know, um, but yeah, I don't. I don't feel like. And actually, Toby Blanford uh, down in down in Wales, uh, who's always known for for, for being witty, uh, overanalyzing, overthinking. That's hilarious. I get the impression we're just scratching the surface. Uh, I think that's that's uh, that's a that's a beautiful comment. There's there's a good metaphor to end on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. All right, well, thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, everyone. I'll stop the live. Thanks, Mike.